turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday show. That means we've made it to the end of another week. As time goes by, it's just so fast. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Truly grateful that you tuned in today, took some time out of your busy schedule. This is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about things going on in your life, really anything on your heart. All you got to do is dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. Remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to your studio or to our studio producer. Hey, hope you have a great weekend this weekend. It always is a great weekend. We get a chance to hang out with the body of Christ. You get a chance to use the gifts that God has given you. Let me ask those of you who have the gift of encouragement to use it. I mean, to go out of your way, to purpose in your heart, to offer that gift to the Lord this weekend, because I promise you that when you go to church, wherever it is, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who need that gift. The lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, the confused, the fearful, the angry. Well, church is where we all hang out on Sundays. And there's going to be people who are really hurting. There are going to be people who are deeply afraid. People that are overwhelmed by worry and stress. And God wants to use you to bless those people. So offer your body as that living sacrifice holy and pleasing to the Lord when you go to church on Sunday. It will change your view of church completely. 
Before we get into the questions uh, tonight here at Covered Chapel, uh, Pastor Ken is going to be teaching uh, a, a, just a wonderful, glorious Bible study uh, in first, in not First John, but in John, the Gospel of John, chapter three. Uh, Jesus telling Nicodemus, "You must be born again." So that's his text for tonight. It's chapter three, the first seven verses. Um, that's at 7 o'clock. You can watch it at calvarysa.com uh, and uh, watch the live stream. But we always have room on Friday night. You can come and join us and be a part of the body of Christ as well. Um, Sunday, I'm going to be teaching uh, the first 22 verses in Acts chapter 27 uh, as we get near the end of the book of Acts. So uh, really good stuff going on. Okay, let's get to your questions, and then we will sort of go from there. Here is the first question. This one is from Nacho from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, could you elaborate or contrast what John is saying in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, where he writes that the beast and the false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur? My question is, are people who are thrown in the lake of fire in spirit form or do they get an eternal body as well as uh, we do, or like the ones I guess we do in heaven? The term thrown alive makes me think that their bodies went in as well, um, meaning that others are in spirit form. I hope that makes sense. No, um, we're not sure when they're thrown into the lake of fire. They're the first two people. They're going to be in the lake of fire all by themselves for 1,000 years. They will be joined at the end of Jesus' thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. They will be joined by all of those uh, at the second death or those who have rejected Jesus Christ, and they will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Now, I agree with you in the sense that uh, it appears that they're thrown in bodily form. Now, clearly, uh, that's going to require a transformation. As you know, Nacho, when we're caught up, we're going to be given a physical body, a spirit body, but a physical body, a glorious resurrected body, uh, because we couldn't go into heaven in these bodies. These bodies aren't fit for heaven. I always remind people that we can't even go up in an airplane to go past 10,000 feet. We need to pressurize the cabin because our bodies aren't meant to take that kind of pressure. Well, how much more we go to heaven? And I believe, and this is just speculation because there's uh, no real information or specific answer to the question, uh, I believe that our th- those who are cast into lake of fire, the Antichrist and the false prophet first, um, uh, they'll go in physical bodies, but there will be a transformation that allows them to endure the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. That does not mean there won't be any pain. It doesn't mean that it won't be the worst thing ever. Jesus talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth um, where the worm doesn't die, um, uh, torment. I'm in fire in Luke chapter 16. Uh, The rich man said, I'm in fire and my tongue is in fire in this place. Uh, So they can feel it and it's painful. And of course, these two are those who are going to be punished most severely. You know, Jesus talks about some who will go into torment beaten with few blows, others who go into torment beaten with many blows, indicating because of the justice and the fairness of God that not everybody is punished the same in hell, um, whether it's the, 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 the abyss in Luke chapter 16 or the, the great 
um, um, white throne judgment and lake of fire, uh, they're not all going to be punished the same. It will all be awful for everybody who's there, separated from God, but their physical bodies are going to be thrown in and there will have to be that kind of transformation. So uh, I think that's really important uh, to understand. Good question, Nacho. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question. This one is from Carlos again. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. This is Carlos from the Northeast side. Sorry to ask so many questions this week, Carlos. It's always okay. And then he says this, and I love this. I just feel like a new awakening in me. But anyway, can you explain Psalm 51 to me and explain what a steadfast spirit means in uh, lines or verses 10 to 12 in that psalm? Thank you and God bless. Um, Carlos, Psalm 51 is a psalm that every single Christian ought to be intimately familiar with. We know the background. This is David after Nathan has confronted him. You're the man, David. And and, and instantly David was convicted. Um, We know from Psalm 32 that uh, he felt um, um, uh, sort of separated from his body, trying to keep the sin um, inside. Uh, But in Psalm 51 is when he comes to, to... to grips with the fact that I'm a sinner and the things I've done have offended God. Now remember, that would really affect David because David is repeatedly described as a man after God's own heart. Uh, He hated that he sinned. He did, and he did some really bad things. But when he says, Lord, forgive me, surely I was sinful at birth from my mother's womb. Uh, I, I I was a sinner. And he's accepting responsibility. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned, O God. And when he says that, when he's saying, look, they didn't make me do it. It wasn't that I was tempted and the devil was there. He accepted personal responsibility for his sin. And then he could make a petition. When we accept personal responsibility for our sin, Carlos, then we can go before the Lord and say, God, please forgive me with the assurance the absolute assurance that we're forgiven. First John 1, 9 is that wonderful, glorious promise. But David takes it a step farther. He asks God to restore unto him the joy of his salvation. Renew within me a right spirit. I think the translation you're reading says a steadfast spirit. But renew within me a right spirit. He knows it's there. It's like the Apostle Paul in writing to the Romans. He says, when I sin, I find this law at work. It is not me who sins, but sin living in me. Well, David understood that he, he, he wasn't by nature that sinner. And he didn't want to do it anymore. So he's asking for a, in your translation, a steadfast spirit. I like the, a right spirit better. A spirit that's right with God, because when we're right with God, then we have the ability and the power to overcome any and all temptations that come our way. Carlos, the New Testament confirmations promise is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation is seized you except that which is common to man, and God is faithful. And that's why we have to have a right spirit, because God is faithful. He won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. And when we are tempted, he will provide a way out. In other words, we don't have to give in to the temptation. So that's very, very important when we understand that. And then he says, renew within me a right spirit and restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And Carlos, in all of our lives, and God bless you, you said you feel like there's a new awakening in you. That's a wonderful thing. That's when the joy 
comes back. That's when we're truly grateful for what God has done for us. And then the people can see the joy of the Lord. And of course, joy is a fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. Great question, Carlos. Thank you very, very much. And as I mentioned, don't worry about asking too many questions. We have a lot of programs. Here is a question um, from our email inbox. This one is anonymous. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. I heard you preach about fear and worry. And it was refreshing to hear that it is normal for us to experience this. But I read in Revelation 21, verse 8, in the King James, about how the fearful will be condemned to hell. Can you please share your knowledge on this? Thank you for all you do. Um, Anonymous, I think it's very important for Bible teachers especially. But I think for all Christians. And by the way, let me also say, for, for husbands and fathers to share with their kids. Look, kids, I'm afraid. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but but I know God is with us. That way you get to share the deliverance of God with your family members. They get to watch your faith grow, and in the process, their faith will grow. So very important to share. I made the point in that Bible study that you were listening to that I'm afraid all the time. But what I have purposed in my heart not to do is to let fear keep me from being obedient. Um, I think if you've been listening to this program, Anonymous, you know we're in the process of of moving to a new church building. It's five and a half times more space than the space we've got. And it is the most expensive thing ever, and we don't have any money. And I worry all the time. I'm afraid of what it's going to look like. And, oh, Lord, you know how much money we need, and you know what our time schedule is. And yet, when I can make those requests known to God, I can do so with a grateful heart. And I can say, and this is more for me than for God, because obviously he knows more about me than I do, but I'll say, God, but you know, and I know, I'm not going to let fear keep me from doing what it is you've asked me to do. I think sometimes, Anonymous, we have the opinion that we have a choice when God says to do something. Uh, We don't have a choice. We just have to have the faith to leave the consequences to him. And, and what we do is we simply say, Jesus, I'm going to be obedient in spite of my fear. And if we get that, then the Lord is so pleased with us. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six says. So when we step out in faith, overcoming our fear or our anxiety... Well, that really pleases the Lord. Now, with regard to your specific question about the fearful, a better translation of that, and and, uh, the King James and the authorized versions are really the only ones that use the word fear. Um, The context demands, this is judgment, it says, but the cowardly, not the fearful, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. That's the question that we asked, answered for uh, Nacho at the beginning of the program. So it's the cowardly. Now, what does he mean by the cowardly? In that place, remember, during the Great Tribulation, everyone will be required to take the mark of the beast. And when they take the mark of the beast, they will know that they are condemned. And what they're going to do is demonstrate that by taking the mark, I'm more fearful of the Antichrist. I'm more fearful of not eating. I'm more fearful of the consequences than I am afraid of God. 
And so that's the cowardly, the cowardly who knew it was the power of God doing all of those judgments. And still they made the wrong choice because they were afraid of the Antichrist and the consequences on earth. So it's not the fearful, it is the cowardly. And that's a much, much, much better better translation. And again, only two uh, translations, the King James and the Authorized Version, uh, use the word fear or fearful. Um, um, Even the New King James uses the word uh, the cowardly. Thank you very much. That's a really good question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question. This one is from uh, also anonymous. And let me say, going in, this this question has caused me a lot of pain over the last couple of days. Hello, Pastor. I was listening to your message of 1 John Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which was recorded in 2008. And by the way, Anonymous and anybody else, we are going to be starting in Sundays in First John again, uh, coming up in just a very few weeks uh, when I finish the book of Acts. And I'm really excited about it. So I'll be going over this information again. He says, in it, you mention that true fellowship with God is described as spiritual intercourse, meaning true oneness, joy, and unity. Now, before I go on, uh, that Greek word is koinonia, and it's spiritual intercourse. It's fellowship is what it's typically translated as, or communion uh, in our New Testament. Um, But but it, it describes an intimate oneness with the Lord. So then he continues, You also mentioned how that should apply to our fellowship between one another in the church, all our brothers and sisters in Christ. You mentioned that if we are not vulnerable or approachable to others in the body, the body can't work the way it's supposed to. Now, all those are true statements. And then he says this, being a part of Calvary Chapel for quite some time now, and he's talking about our church, obviously, I don't see that true spiritual intercourse as much as maybe I should. I see a lot of the same brothers and sisters just hanging out with specific people all the time. Yes, most say hi and give a hug when new, but then a lot just hang with their clicks. Now, clicks for me is a is a trigger word. Um, clicks is is a word where people you know who don't want to get involved, the people who are are, are kind of off by themselves. Um, um, they say, well, well, I, I, they're all in a bunch of cliques. I'm going to talk about that at length in a moment. And then he continues, honestly, how would you say we're doing as a church in us having true spiritual intercourse with each other? I think you will probably say something like, get over yourself. But I ask this not out of spite with a genuine curiosity and a grieved spirit. And this is anonymous. Anonymous, I, I know it's hard. I wish you'd have used your name. Because I would like to sit with you face to face so you can see my face and you can see the pain that something like this causes me. Now, this church, now I think all of you who don't come to Calvary Chapel expect pastors to say this about their churches. But this church has always been a church that is known for its love and for its fellowship and for its unity. Um, it, it's a very special place. The people here are very special. Uh, and we have demonstrated that over and over and over. Whenever I'm uh, asked to speak at another 
church in another state, uh, um, the, 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 the word about the love that's here, the ministry that goes on here um, has spread all over. And typically that's what they want me to talk about. So uh, I think we're doing really, really well. Now, you're going to disagree because you're sitting there with a grieved spirit. But um, I really want to dig into that for a minute. People that come in here immediately feel loved. You're right. Uh, my wife is a love rocket. I mean, uh, the minute she, even if she's singing the worship team, the minute we have the break and our meet and greet time before church and then after the service, she's getting names of people. She's taking pictures of them. She's writing down names so she can remember them. And, and she's doing that because she truly wants them to understand how grateful we are that they're here. Um, a lot of people in our church, most notably a lot of the women in our church, have watched Paula do this now for these 27, 8, 9 plus years that we've been here. And they've started doing the same thing. I've got a whole class, a pastor's discipleship class. Uh, we meet tomorrow from 1030 to 1230. We, we meet every other Saturday. And they do the same thing. Their job, as they know, is to come to church. And they're reaching out to people, especially people they've never seen before. That's really, really important. We want them to feel welcome. We want them to understand that they are, are able to, 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 to fit in, to blend in, that they can find a church family if, in fact, that's what they're looking for. Now, you say they hang out with their cliques, and you put cliques in quotes like it's a little buzzword. There's no cliques. There's no clicks. Obviously, people greet their friends. They greet with the people that they serve with in individual ministries. That's just the way church is supposed to be. But they also are reaching out to other people. Now, you seem to indicate two things. One, you've been coming for quite some time. So if you'll honestly look at this, you'll recognize it. They're trying to encourage others to do that. When somebody is brand new here, we reach out to them, and we keep reaching out to them. The second time they come, and the third time we come, they come. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, man, we're so glad you're here. And we'll hear all the time, well, this is my church home. This is where the Lord has led me. And it's so, okay, now get involved. And that's what I'm going to say to you. I'm not going to say get over yourself. What I am going to say is you need to get involved. We have so many different peoples. Let me get people. Uh, tonight in our Friday night service. There will be anywhere from 10 to 25 people that after the service go out together. And they always are inviting new people to come. Uh, they'll go out to a gyms or a Denny's or an IHOP or something. And, and they'll just sit and they'll kind of talk about the Bible study. Um, they'll talk about each other, wanting to get to know one another. But but uh, the, the, the leaders of our street ministry, they're the ones who've organized this. And it's become very organic. And they'll just invite people. All you've got to do is get up out of your chair and get involved. Another thing I can tell you is you need to get involved. You know, when you come in, and, and people do come in, and they'll give up that vibe like, well, I don't want anybody close to me. They'll make it very uncomfortable for the person who approaches them and greets them. Um, you need to be the person that's doing the greeting now. If you've been coming for quite some time, you don't need to be ministered to. You need to be active using the power of the Holy Spirit to minister to others. And the way you do that is to use the gifts God has given you. Step outside of your comfort zone. And I know there are some people who are painfully shy. 
One man that I'm thinking of in particular, he is so painfully shy. He's going to be with that group that goes out tonight after church. So you need to get involved. Let me make another very practical suggestion. You want to find a click? Then find Pastor Matt when you're here tonight, or if you come tonight, or when you're here on Sunday. Find Pastor Matt and tell him you want to get involved in usher ministry. Force yourself to meet people. Force yourself to be um, forward. I don't mean uncomfortably aggressive, but, but greet people. Learn their names. Again, it's important we step out of our comfort zones and then God begins to use you. The problem with people when they just come and sit and wait for people to come to them, hey, after the first three, four, five weeks, the people here are looking for new people. And you ought to be one of those people looking for new people. Instead of sitting around saying, well, they're talking to each other and they're just clicks. That's not the way it is. Our worship team, they get off the stage, they go out. They want to meet new people. And if you are involved in ministry, whatever it is, usher ministry, small group ministry, uh, our cleaning crew on Saturday mornings, we've got a pretty good-sized crew. They go out together. They have a wonderful time together. And so, of course, when they come into church on Sunday, they're high-fiving and hugging each other. That's the way church is supposed to be. The man or the woman who sort of sits on the fringes and doesn't really dig in, that's the person that's really missing out. And you've been coming for quite some time. That's your your word. And if that's the case, you're the one who is missing out. You're the one who's not getting involved. And if you've been coming for quite some time, you've heard me talk about this over and over and over. And while occasionally, and I'll get three or four uh, letters or emails or comments like this per year, I cannot tell you how many people especially visitors, are overwhelmed by the love and the fellowship and the closeness in this church. And that's what you're missing out on. So you thought I'd say get over yourself? No, just be like Jesus and reach out, get out of your comfort zone, and let God change everything about your church experience. Thank you for being honest. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our week, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, if you're out of the area, 877-630-KSLR. This is the Friday Show. I'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back i always get a little bit sad on friday when i say this is our final 30 minutes of the week 340-9585 here's an anonymous, another anonymous question in fact the next two are anonymous um, Pastor, how do you view churches who pay their worship teams? Let me say two things. One, it's none of my business. Um, secondly, um, we believe very strongly that our service to the church needs to be an offering. 
Now, if you are referring to professional musicians who aren't saved, they don't belong on the worship stage, period. How can you worship God when that worship is being led by people who don't worship him? I mean, it's just a lie. And I know there are churches that are so concerned with the quality of their worship. Now, worship ought to be good, but they're so concerned about the quality. It's like i got to put on a show, and they will hire professional musicians. And while the quality of the music is great, there's always a sense of emptiness. You can, you can, can, can experience it. So um, I'm not a fan of that. But um, on our worship stage uh, tonight, I don't know, I guess David's probably doing worship tonight. Um, on Sunday, I'll give you a, it's a better example. Um, uh, a couple of those people are paid uh, because they are employed by the church. Our, my worship pastor is employed by the church. So he works full-time. He's, he's a third-grade teacher here at the academy, so he gets paid primarily for that. But, but his worship is his offering to the Lord. And, and offering needs to be a sacrifice. So I'm not a fan of at all of worshiping uh, or, or having worship teams where your, your motivation for doing it is to be paid. I think that's an important distinction for all of us to make. Let me make another statement about this and get away from just the worship team only. But I know of churches, and I know this because there are people who come to Calvary Chapel who have jobs in other churches uh, where they're paid, uh, sound people, um, um, other ministries, and they pay people because they want to know that there's going to be enough people there to serve in the kids' church or to serve in worship ministry or to serve in sound ministry, cleaning crews, those kind of things. Um, that mortifies me. It just mortifies me. People ought to be using the gifts that God has given them to serve in the church that God has led them to. Again, full-time people, uh, when it's a job, that's okay, but then they still need to serve over and above what they get paid to do. But we we don't have to, for cleaning crews, we don't have to hire anybody. We've got people who are here every day, and they're excited for the opportunity to serve the Lord, children's ministry workers. Uh, we don't pay those people, um, the people who come here, um, and, and God has given them gifts. They use those gifts um, to, to honor the Lord. So I, I'm not, it always just stuns me that churches, especially big churches, and huge churches are the ones that typically will pay people because they want the best show. So they get um, professional sound people, professional uh, special effects people, those kind of things. Um, uh, we've never had to do that. Uh, it would, it would, I, I would consider it a failure on my part as the pastor of this church. If we had to pay people to serve, they do it out of the gratitude of their hearts. So anonymous, that's the best I can do. At the same time, uh, if um, I was talking to a pastor of a church who uh, was paying people to do all those things, um, I, it, it would, it's not my business. Who am I to judge another man's servant? Here's the other anonymous question. In Revelation 20, 
The devil is bound for a thousand years. Why would God allow him to go free? Well, Anonymous, God allowed him to go free because there are going to be billions of people, multiplied billions of people. Imagine in a uh, a redeemed earth, uh, a renewed earth for a thousand years where people are going to live for nearly the whole thousand years, if not the whole thousand years. There are going to be so many people who are born under the reign of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem, and they're not going to have any choice about who they serve. Jesus is a potentate. He's a, a benevolent potentate. But but make no mistake, he's dictating. He's not soliciting uh, volunteers. We're going to live in righteousness. We're going to live in holiness. We're going to live with perfect justice. And um, those people who were born, I'm talking about people in flesh and blood bodies. Now, as believers, we will be in our glorified physical resurrected bodies. But the people who are born during that thousand years, they will never have had the opportunity to make a choice of their own free will to serve the Lord. And so the devil's going to be bound for a thousand years. Right at the end, he's going to be let loose for a short time. And the purpose is to deceive the nations. In other words, he's going to present them with their choice. Do you want to serve God or do you want to serve me? And that's what happened to Satan. You know, he said, I don't want to worship you. I want to be worshipped. And, and, you know, you'd think after a thousand years of a perfectly just world with with the righteous God of the universe ruling and reigning, you'd think, you'd think everybody would say, well, of course I want I wanna to, to, to serve you, God. But we're told that when the devil is set free, the numbers of people that are going to be deceived are like the grains of sand on the seashore. And then when it's over, they've made their choice and they've sinned. Uh, that's when the second death occurs, the great white throne judgment, and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. So it's simply to permit people to make a choice. God has never, not with angels and not with man, God has never forced anybody to love him or to serve him. We have to choose. Here is another anonymous question. Is seminary or Bible college a requirement for a pastor? The answer is no. Now, I went to Bible college um uh, that that's the direction the lord led me um but but honestly anonymous i didn't learn as much in bible college as i was learning before bible college i was doing a lot more study on my own a serious study uh before i ever went to bible college uh and so it's not necessary at all and some of the most wonderful pastors um i've met friends of mine uh, fruitful, fruitful ministries, uh, they never went either to Bible college or to seminary. So no, it's not necessary. Now, that doesn't mean that we at Calvary Chapel in particular are against seminary or Bible college or advanced education, um, but it isn't necessary. Now, in fact, uh, when we get moved to our new building, one of the ministries that will be able to accommodate in in a, in a, when we have space is a Bible college. We've had a vision from the beginning for a Bible college. We've got the, the man who's going to run the Bible college, Pastor Chris, and um, um, it, it's it's also going to be free. So we think Bible college, when it's done correctly, when it's focused on on ministry, not just on education. You know, we're never told in the Bible to pursue knowledge. We're told to pursue the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his will, 
and that will be the foundation of our Bible college. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm confident that there will be a lot of, of young men and women in particular who know they're called in the ministry, and Bible college will be a place where they can be prepared, uh, learning what a servant's heart is, as well as learning uh, the Word, the knowledge of God, and the knowledge of God's will for their lives. So it is not necessary, um, but it, it's it's not harmful as long as the seminary or Bible college really is a spirit-led, spirit-filled um, institution. So yes, we're going to have a Bible college uh, in our church, and so we think it's a good thing, uh, but not a necessary thing. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Um, Nikki wants to know: Is it necessary to get married in a church for God to bless the marriage? No, Nikki, it's not. What's necessary is for you to be obedient to the Lord and get married. You know, um, I, I'm 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 not a huge event person, so uh, when I see especially young people who are getting married and they're spending you know, $10,000 plus on a wedding, that's always frustrating for me. You know, we tell people all the time, look, you can, we'll marry you for free. You can, have a, you can have the building for free, whatever you want to do. And, you know, a lot of times, especially brides who've dreamed about their wedding day their whole lives, they'll look at our tacky strip mall church and say, well, you know, I was thinking about something else. And I just think, well, wait a minute, how much are you going to pay for someplace else that you're thinking and wouldn't that money be great going into a down payment on a home? Or wouldn't that money be better used getting out of debt rather than spending it on an event? Now, it's not my choice. The bride always gets to choose. But I just want to give them another alternative. And Nikki, um, um, we'll have people get married here very quickly, especially if they're living in sin. We want to give them the opportunity. And if they want to have a a ceremony later, they can plan that. Um, Additionally, we've had people who uh, got married uh, at the courthouse. Uh, They want to get right with God, they get married at the courthouse. As long as you're married, as long as you're in obedience to the law, as long as your relationship is pure, now, if it's too late and you've already sinned, um, you know, then separate yourselves for a time. Doesn't it be a long time? But just say, God, we want to get right and do right. It's sort of like having a fast, a sex fast, um, just so you can make sure your heart is right with the Lord and gives you the opportunity to repent for the, the, the sexual sins in the relationship and let God renew things. But it doesn't matter where you get married, as long as you do it legally. As long as you do it because you want to please the Lord, believe me, he'll honor that marriage anywhere. It's not necessary at all to get married in a church. It's good to have the family of God around, but it isn't a requirement. Linda says, Pastor Ron, are there some people God just will not save? Um, Yeah, there are people that God won't save, and the answer is that they are the people that don't want to be saved. In order to be saved, I like the word rescue. Paul says, who can rescue me from this body of death? In order to be rescued, you've got to know that you need to be. You've got to know that, that you've done really bad things and you're on your way to hell. And God knows, yeah, he's not mocked, Galatians 6 says. So what we do is understand that God's invitation for salvation is, 
is universal to everybody. But the invitation only has value or validity when it's accepted. Jesus talked about the wedding banquet parable, and, and he said, go out in the highways and the byways and invite people. Uh, the first people that he invited, meaning the Jews, didn't come. Oh, they had other things to do. So he kept inviting people. But only when those received the invitation, then those are the people that get saved. And of course, God knows who will and who won't. Romans 8.29 and Ephesians, uh, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter 1, the first two verses. Uh, make it clear that the basis of God's choice of people is his foreknowledge. So the people that God knows will not be saved, they don't want to be saved, um, those people can be saved. Now, they could repent, but they won't. I I think of Judas. uh, Betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss, Jesus said to him. Uh, At the Last Supper, um, Jesus said, one of you will betray me this day. Um, Judas had every opportunity. Judas would have been the first pair of dirty feet that Jesus washed in John chapter 13. Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus to to wash Judas's dirty feet, looking at him in the eye, sort of sending the message, please repent, please repent. But of course, God knew that he wouldn't. So no, there are not people that God will not save. Uh, Everybody can be saved. The call to salvation is universal. And all you have to do is be willing to be. So, Linda, I hope that answers your question. Brian says, I don't like the way this one's starting out. Not intending to offend, but you sometimes seem like you're the only one with the right answers. How can you be so sure that Christianity is true? Well, Brian, um, I have the right answers. Now, I don't have all the answers to all of the problems in life. But in terms of knowing Christianity is true, I know because I've really sought the Lord. I've really wanted to know what's true. God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And you can know that too. In First John, the book that we're going to be going to next after the book of Acts, in chapter 5, John says, I write these things so that you may know you have eternal life. So I'm 100% sure. And I'm 100% sure because I've really dug in and found out what's true. And Brian, when people like you say not attending to offend, I know my certainty rubs people the wrong way. We want options. You know, when we were kids and we got a pop quiz, we're always happy when it was a multiple choice or multiple answer question. And we did that because, well, at least we got a chance of being right. Well, that's how people deal with their eternal salvation. Well, you know, there are many roads to heaven. We're all just taking a different route, but we're going to arrive in the same place. No, 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 that's not true. Because our Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Again, First John says if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father. If you have the Son, you do have the Father. So we can be sure. And I know because I've checked it out. Brian, there is an empty tomb that once had a body. And I always advise people, if you're struggling with, well, how do I know that Christianity is true and maybe uh, Islam is not true or Buddhism is not true? The, the answer is simple. Go find out. Go check out historically. Look at the evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. Did Jesus really live? 
Was he really murdered, and we know he was? And did he stay dead, or did he rise from the dead? Now, the evidence for those questions is overwhelming, and at some point you've got to say, if Jesus said he was going to die, said he was going to rise from the dead, and did rise from the dead, then what he said was true. And you can work from that point backwards, and you can come to the same conclusions about the rest of the Bible. You know, Brian, when people come to church and, you know, we've got people inviting people like you who aren't quite sure about things, and, well, how do I know this is the truth? And, and, and what about good people from other religions? Those kind of questions. I can always tell who they are. And they do get offended by the things that I said. But remember, Jesus offended people as well. So I'm not offended by you, but I offend people like you all the time. The cross is an offense because we like, let me change that verb, we demand choices, options. When Jesus says, nope, no options. If you love me, you'll obey me. If you do what's right, it'll go well with you. We want other options in the middle, and Jesus simply never negotiates. So I am 100% certain, Brian, and so too can you be, but you've got to be intellectually honest enough to really dig in and find out what's true or what isn't true. Thank you, Brian. This question comes from Tim. Fridays, our phones are quiet today. First Timothy 3.15 says the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth and not the Bible. What do you say? Well, um, Tim, in from 1 Timothy, uh, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. We, we, we carry the message that is true. Um, and I, I, I guess your implication here is that our focus on the Bible is overemphasized. Um, but you see, we have no fellowship with one another apart from the Word of God. We are the pillar and foundation of the truth because the Bible reveals the one who is true. So we have the truth in the Word of God. And again, if, if your inference is that, well, no, just being with other people, having fellowship, oh, why the Bible, the Bible, the Bible all the time? And I can only guess that's what you mean by this question. Without the Bible, we have no true fellowship because there's nothing true. There's nothing concrete that we can hold on to. I love Paul's statement to Timothy when he says the church is a pillar and foundation of the truth uh, because the reality is that um, the church is not looked at that way at all in the world that we live in. We have to know that those of us who know what is true, our our faith is orthodox. And by that I mean... um, um, we agree on the essentials of the historic Christian faith, not the Orthodox Church or the Greek or the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, our faith is is something we can count on. And we are demanded by the Lord, who is in charge of our lives, we are demanded and I'll add commanded by the Lord to go out and share that truth. The truth will set people free. We've got to be willing to share that truth and uh, that truth only comes in the church. We are the light of Jesus Christ in this world. 
You know, it's interesting. Paul writes to the churches in Thessalonica that the 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 one who restrains evil will be taken out of the way, meaning the Holy Spirit. But it's really the Holy Spirit in the presence or in the person of the church, Christians. And when we're out of here, the place is going to get so dark so fast. I mean, we can't even imagine how evil things are going to be. Because when you take out the pillar and foundation of the truth, then what happens is we collapse. And society is going to collapse. So, again, your church is, is, or your statement is, is worded a little bit awkwardly. So, Tim, if that's not what you mean, maybe you can reword it and send it in again. Boy, this time went fast, even though nobody called. It's uh, four minutes. Let me see if i got a question I can do. Um, Charles wants to know, would I explain 1 John 2.19? Yeah, let me read it. This troubles people. Um, John writes this, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But them going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, the question has always been, even from the very beginning, and especially with John and Peter, because they both make references of this, the fact that Judas betrayed them, betraying Jesus and betraying them, <laughs> stuck with them for the, for the rest of their lives. And uh, it just, they couldn't believe. And, and so they dealt with the same things. Well, well, what happens when somebody's saved and then they go off and they leave God and they find another religion or they, they go into to, to some sort of sin? Um, John explains it in this chapter. He says, uh, the people that started with us but went out from us didn't really belong to us. Now, we like to think everybody who says they're saved is saved, Charles. But... The Bible says that's not true. There are a lot of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And and the identification for that conclusion is found in the lifestyle that they live. And John is simply saying that the people who really belong to Jesus Christ, Jesus at the end of his ministry, he said to his father in the upper room discourse in John chapters 14 through 17, he said, Father, I've not lost any that you've given to me. Now, that means when people are given to the Lord, when, according to Ephesians 1, a deposit is given to us, guaranteeing our inheritance in heaven, um, Jesus has never lost any. I get frustrated at times parents will say, you know, I send my kid to college and they steal his faith. We're losing a whole generation. Jesus never lost anybody. Those people were really never saved. They may have been raised in church. They may have said the right things, but they weren't really saved. Because if they're really saved, Jesus says, he has us in his hands and the Father has us in his hands. And no one can snatch you out of his hands. So John is simply saying the people that we thought were believers, those people, they walked away. All that proved is they never really belonged to us. They could say the right things. Jesus said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And I will say, who are you? Get away from me. I never knew you. But but wait a minute, I prophesied. I, I spoke in tongues. I performed miraculous feats. And Jesus will say, I didn't know you. And that's what John is communicating there as well, Charles. So we've just got to get used to the fact that we can't, we don't know who's really saved and who's not saved. Somebody's acting like an unbeliever, treat them like an unbeliever, pray for them like an unbeliever. That's not you judging their heart. That's you just saying, okay, God, you go get him. You go get him. I'm going to be praying for him. And that's what John would have done. And again, in both John and Peter's case, Judas's betrayal 
impacted them for the rest of their lives. And when people go out, they go off, they they fall away from the Lord, it ought to hurt every single one of us. Hey, thanks for tuning in. It's been a good week on the program. May the Lord bless you and keep you. When you go to church on Sunday or even tonight, if you're going to church, let the Lord use you to be a blessing to others. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back on Monday at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh, yeah.